the subject is the akedah, the binding of Isaac. Sometimes in Christian discourse, it's referred to as the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, which is not a bad title. Uh, the of is correct. The Isaac is correct. Uh, the sacrifice part is, is a little problematic there. Um, but this is a text that's very problematic, very challenging, uh, very troublesome, uh, sometimes interpreted away, sometimes avoided, sometimes ignored. Um, and what I want to explore in these three classes is uh, the nature of this text, Genesis 22, how the ancient rabbis who produced Midrash in Talmudic times, biblical interpretation in, in Talmudic times, reckoned with the problems, what they saw as the point of it, what they saw as its correct meanings, what they might have seen as its incorrect meanings, what struck them as theologically problematic, what struck them as not theologically problematic. And then in the last class on Wednesday, to talk about the afterlife, post-Talmudic afterlife, the role this story plays in Jewish theology, in Jewish liturgy uh, over the centuries, and uh, in Christianity and Islam. It's an extraordinarily uh, fruitful text for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Whether moderns like it or not, it's a central text. It's a, it, it's a pivotal text for all three of these uh, religions uh, who make somewhat different usages of it. So the last class, we'll look a little bit at Midrash again and then go on uh, into uh, some New Testament texts and a Quranic text uh, very, very uh, briefly. Uh, so you should all have this uh, handout and... Uh, the first text is all we're looking at tonight, the first page, which is just the artistry of this passage itself. I'm going to try to read through the passage asking questions. Uh, after the lecture, people can then answer those questions uh, if they want. Uh, uh, maybe they can't answer them. The ones I can't answer, you can answer. Uh, and uh, to talk about also some of the theological problems uh, that are raised here, with an eye to the way in which it's then read by the rabbis uh, in the Midrashim that we'll look at uh, tomorrow afternoon. So here we are in Genesis uh, 22 on the first page. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. Now, the first question that comes to my mind is, after what? In other words, uh, is there some particular event that provokes this test? Is there, in fact, such a, an event? Why, in fact, does God do this? Why does God, at the end of it, towards the end of Abraham's life, why does he, in fact, subject him to this gruesome text where he's to sacrifice his son, his only son living at home, the only son who is the heir to the promise, the promised son, the beloved son, Isaac? Why does he tell him to do that? Was there something, some doubt God had about Abraham? Was there some doubt Abraham had about himself? Was there something deficient in Abraham's life that, in fact, he was... Uh, he was uh, commanded to do this. And he said to him, Abraham, and he answered, Hineni. He answered, here I am. Not a great translation. Uh, I've sort of put in some alternative translations a few places in this text, but not for that word. There is no word like Hineni. I've seen it translated as something like ready, uh, at your service. But that sounds like a, I don't know, a muffler shop or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know, it's not, God didn't say, you know, it's been 30,000 miles, and Abraham said, at your service. It's not like that. Uh, Hineni draws attention to the person, immediate visual attention drawn to the speaker. Uh, here I am in the sense of I, I'm alert, I'm obedient, I'm a, tell me what you want, something like that. But we have no English term that can cover that. Okay. Uh, but it's interesting, one word from God, Abraham. 
And immediately uh, Abraham answers one word, hineni, translated here in English with three words, here I am. And he said, take your son, et yechidacha, your favored son, your only son, your special son, very hard to know how to translate yechid, the one whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, an ola, a burnt offering, on one of the heights that I will point out to you. Now, you know what is special about uh, Isaac. Uh, Abraham has rested his entire life on Isaac. Abraham, from the very beginning, has uh, been answering a divine command, lech lecha, get up and go. Get up and go out of your father's house, out of your, the, the uh, land uh, uh, which is your homeland, uh, out of your uh, kin group, and go to the land that I will show you. And it, what is uh, important to recall is not just that God will give him that land, but even before that we hear, this is in Genesis 12, that God will uh, make of him a great nation. He will make of him a great nation. Now there's a problem here. How is Abraham going to become the father of a great nation? Because he's not the father of anybody. I don't know how many of you are involved with advanced genetic uh, work, <laughs> genetic research, that sort of thing. But one of the more interesting finds in recent uh, genetic research is that infertility is inherited. If your children, if your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. <laughs> Abraham has, Abraham has no children at all. Abraham has no children at all, and his wife is barren. She may have been barren all her life, seems to have been barren all her life, and uh, she seems to be aged, she seems to be too old to have children now, having been barren all his life, and yet he is supposed to be the father of a great nation. It reminds me of the time the Jew got on the bus and sat down next to the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest was wearing the Roman collar, he had not yet kicked the habit, and, and uh, the Jew looks at him for a minute and says, uh, pardon me, sir, uh, but you know, uh, you have your shirt on backwards. And the priest says, no, 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 I'm a father. The Jew says, no, I'm a father too. Do I wear my shirt on backwards? At which point the priest says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a father to thousands. The Jew said, in that case, keep your shirt the way it is and put your pants on backwards. <laughs> now the point is, Abraham has promised he's going to be the father to thousands, but he's not the father of anybody. And his wife is too old to have children, and he's not exactly a spring chicken himself. Uh, and so when Isaac is finally born, when uh, Abraham is 100, and Sarah, his wife, is 90, that is a, not only a miracle, obviously, but that's a fulfillment of this crazy, crazy promise that God made to him, but which he has, in fact, followed. He's, in fact, acted in accordance with that promise from the time he first gets that command, lech get up and go, get up and go out of your father's household, out of your land, your father's household, your kin group, and go to the land that I will show you. But now he's being told, sacrifice Isaac. Now he's being told, make him a burnt offering. That is to say, a, 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 a slay him as a sacrificial offering, uh, which will then be burnt up uh, as an offering to God on the heights that I will show you. And you can't see it terribly well in the English, but there's a similarity of phrasing. There's an echo here in verse 2 of the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God says, lech lecha, get up and go. And here he says, uh, at, towards the end, halfway through verse 2, he says, uh, take your son and go, lech lecha, go to the land of Moriah. And the, the initial uh, uh, episode in Genesis 12 where he's told go to the land 
Well, uh, what has Abraham done to deserve this? What has he done to deserve this? What's special about Abraham that God promises to make him the father of a great nation and uh, a byword of blessing, that people will bless themselves by him and that he will give him an, a, a land? Those of you who went to a Hebrew school or done, as all of you have, uh, a fair amount of reading and listening and Jewish studies, you know the traditional answers. He saw through his father's idols. Uh, he was the first person to divine there's only one God in the world. Or he saw through astrology. All that makes a lot of sense. Uh, none of it's in the Bible. When I used to teach at Wellesley College, after uh, Hillary was already gone, <laughs> I... Uh, I, um, well, I don't know which one was better off by the fact we didn't overlap. Uh, but uh, I used to put that on my, my midterm in my introduction to the Hebrew Bible. I would say, what book of the Bible has the story of Abraham breaking his father's idols? Right? And, uh, you know, we'd have like, a, have like Genesis, uh, Leviticus, Isaiah, none of the above. And I could always tell who had gone to Hebrew school because they got it wrong. They would always say Genesis. You couldn't say they didn't learn anything in Hebrew school. They just didn't learn anything right, but they, they got it right. Uh, so out of nowhere, Abraham is given this command, get up and go. And here in Genesis 22, it seems to be the case, though we'll elaborate on that tomorrow through Midrash, that out of nowhere, Abraham is told, get up and go and sacrifice your son, almost the opposite. And the structure of verse 2 here sounds like the structure of that verse at the beginning of Genesis 12. Take your son, your favored one, the one whom you love, Isaac, and there it's uh, go, uh, uh, leave uh, from, your father, from your house, from, from your native land, from your kin group, from your father's house. A kind of step effect. You could have just said go, right? Or go from your native land. Your native land is going to mean leaving your kin group. It's going to mean leaving your father's household. You, all that you could have just said. But there's a kind of step effect. One word after another increasing the tension. Look at the tension here in verse 2. Take your son. Okay, that's one term. Your favored or only or special son, that narrows it down. He does have another son, Ishmael, who is no longer on the scene. And it's been clear that he is not the son of the promise. He's not the, weighted, the son that's been expected, the, way, the son who was promised. Um, but he has another son. But then further, the one whom you love, lest you think we're dealing with a text here about domestic violence or some crazy father uh, going out to kill his son. This is a father who loves his son. This is, a, this is really a sacrifice, giving up something precious, not something that you, that's expendable. And uh, finally, Isaac. Uh, that step effect here, what I, by that I simply mean a general term son, a more specific term, favored or only one, more specific still or more gut-wrenching still, whom you love. And finally, the name Isaac. He could simply have said, take Isaac, but he doesn't. And that, I think, gives a sense of the drama a sense of the increasing tension in this uh, very disquieting story. It's, like, it's as if, God forbid, some of you were to receive a message that would say, uh, there's been an accident. Uh, there's been a serious accident. There's been a serious accident in your family. Finally, so-and-so, you hear the name of the victim. It's that sort of thing. Okay, offer him up as a burnt offering. And one of the heights that I point out to you, very curious, he doesn't tell him where he's going to go. In other words, when you get there, I'll let you know. But he goes unseeing, in a sense, not knowing the destination. As in Genesis 12, go to the land that I will show you. That's what it says, to the land that I will show you in Genesis 12. And only when he gets to the land does God reveal to him, yeah, that's the land 
uh, that I have in mind, the land of Canaan. Had he gone a little farther south, there would have been oil, but he didn't. <laughs> All right. Uh, text, uh, verse 3. So early next morning, what does that tell you? Does that tell you this revelation came in a dream? Was it a dream vision? That he, he waits till early the next morning? Um, maybe. Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. In the previous chapter of Genesis 21, we have an expulsion of Ishmael, the older son, but not the promised son, the son born in the course of nature through a surrogate mother, through uh, uh, Hagar. Uh, and, um, and the verse in which he sends him and her forth expels his oldest son, in a sense, from the household so as to make room for the promised son, uh, Isaac. Very similar to this. It also begins, uh, early the next morning, he did this. Uh, he loaded up the um, very minimal amount of food and water on the shoulder of Hagar with the boy and sent them out into the desert. So early the next morning, Abraham sat on his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. Who were the two servants? This text doesn't say. This doesn't say. When we get to Midrash, they'll have some interesting suggestions about that. And his son, Isaac. Well, we know Isaac is his son. He could have just said, and Isaac. Uh, he doesn't have to say, and his son, Isaac. Except that throughout this passage, there's a constant underscoring of the father-son relationship. Take your son, your only one, uh, 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 his son, Isaac, uh, Abraham will say, Avi, my father, he spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, Daddy. The father-son bond is, is underscored every step of the way, showing the magnitude and the painfulness of this sacrifice and this event. So he saddled his ass, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place of which God had told him. He split the wood... Well, um, you know, in an earlier chapter, chapter 14, he's got his own private army of 318 men. This guy's a major figure, this, uh, this Abraham in the biblical story. He's become very wealthy, many slaves, many donkeys, camels. Uh, why is he splitting the wood himself? Is it because this is a very private thing? Is this because he himself wants to demonstrate his uh, obedience without question? does not want to farm it out, does not want to outsource it. He wants to do it like hands-on sadaka, where you work with people who are poor or whatever rather than simply writing the check. Uh, is that what it is? Uh, uh, it's, an, it's an eerie image of Abraham out there early in the morning splitting the wood and set out for the place of which God had told him. We don't know what place that is. It's somewhere in the land of Moriah. But what mountain it is in Moriah, we don't know. On the third day, uh, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. How did he know? How do you know he was at the right place? What was there about that place? God, it's the place I'm going to tell you. He doesn't tell him. But somehow Abraham knows. Again, the rabbis will suggest answers to that. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his servants, these two boys that went with him, you stay here with the ass. The boy and I will go up there. We will prostrate ourselves, and we will return to you. Now, if you've read Genesis 22, which I think all of you have, uh, you know that that happens to be true, uh, at least uh, the, uh, the uh, going up there and coming back happens to be true. But Abraham never read Genesis 22. 
Abraham never checked in there to the Beersheba Ramada Inn and opened up and saw, you know, up through chapter 22. Oh, now I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Right? He didn't, so he doesn't know it's a test. You and I know it's a test. Sometimes you turn on the radio, it says, this is a test of the emergency broadcast network. Right? But suppose they went on and didn't tell you that. What if they said, guess what? This time it's not a test. Right? He doesn't know it's a test. And he doesn't, uh, he, he, uh, doesn't know he's going to come back. We will, I translate as we prostrate ourselves. Now, why will we prostrate ourselves? Is that in supplication to God that he called this thing off? He's going to submit to God, nifilat apayim, they call it in the Talmud, falling on one's face in supplication, falling kore uh, 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 in supplication. Is that why we're going to prostrate ourselves? Or is it just part of the act of worship that involved with the sacrifice? There's also evidence for that. We will go up and do a ritual act of self-subordination before God, and we will return to you. But uh, again, he doesn't know that, that they're going to return. So why does he say this? Why doesn't he say, all right, you stay here. The boy and I will go up there, and uh, I will tie him up, and I will slit his throat, drain out the blood, section the body, burn it, and come back Miller time. Right? Why, why does he not say that? For that matter, why does he tell the boys to stay down there with the donkey? Why doesn't he take the two boys up there with him? I think he doesn't take the two boys up there with him because it's typical of biblical narrative to focus on two individuals in a relationship, in a dialogue. Two people talking. The relationships tend to be purely binary. You don't have a scene of a lot of other people around in biblical narrative. You don't have a lot of third-person description. You have an exchange of two people. And in a case like this, where it's the father and the son with this particular subject, this sacrifice, it seems to me you would detract from the tension if you had these two guys, not to mention the donkey, standing up there next to the altar. What do I do now? It's like sometimes in modern uh, productions of Shakespeare, you'll see a uh, spotlight just on the two protagonists, on Romeo and Juliet or whoever it is. Uh, even though there are all kinds of other people standing on the stage, but so you're not distracted by the other people standing on the stage, the stage, the courtiers, the uh, army people, etc. You'll have a spotlight just on the protagonists. Here you want to have the spotlight just on the protagonists. They stay at the bottom of the, of the two boys stay at the bottom of the of the uh, mountain, and uh, Abraham and Isaac go up there alone. We will prostrate ourselves and we will return to you. Why doesn't he say we're going to sacrifice? I can think of a couple of reasons. One is. Uh, he doesn't want Isaac to know. There's one possibility. Is Isaac a willing participant in this story or not? Tomorrow we'll look at texts that very much make Isaac a willing participant. He's so much of a willing participant that he becomes the prototype of the Jewish martyr. A martyr is not just some religious guy who gets killed. A martyr had a choice and chose rather than to break faith or publicly profane the name of God, chose to die instead. That's what a martyr is in the Jewish tradition. Um, starting probably in the second century BCE, there was a revisioning of the way Isaac was read, the way the Akedah was read, so as to put increasing emphasis on Isaac as a willing participant, Isaac as someone who chose to go along and to do this, who saw this as a sacred act himself. He wasn't a, a victim. He could have fled. He didn't. But here in the biblical text, we don't know. We don't know how old Isaac is. We'll talk about that in a moment. We don't know how old he is. Maybe he's a little boy, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And, and Abraham, rather than to scare him, just says, oh, uh, we'll prostrate ourselves, and we will return to you. 
Maybe that's the case. Or maybe it's the case that Abraham is afraid his own resolve will break if he uses a term like slaughter, if he uses a term like that. Maybe he's afraid that, uh, that his, his own resolution will give way and he just won't be able to go through with it. That's why we have all kinds of euphemisms. You know, I lost my aunt. Well, your aunt died, right? I mean, you lost. But we use terms like that so that we aren't uh, having to acknowledge uh, the full force of this. There's a kind of a euphemism involved. Maybe it's uh, Abraham's own psyche that he's afraid of. He's afraid he'll lose his, his nerve. Or maybe he's afraid these two boys will stop him. Maybe he's afraid these two boys will say, what, are you out of your mind? This is the, the boy that you waited 25 years for, the promised son. You've already expelled his older brother who is not the promised son, and you're going to go up and sacrifice this? We're going to stop it. We're going to stop you from doing it. Maybe that's why he doesn't uh, uh, tell the truth. These are all on the assumptions that Abraham knows that what he says here is not the case. He knows he won't return. We won't return. He knows that, in fact, uh, he's going to sacrifice Isaac. The other possibility occurs to me is that he's expressing a hope here. Or to be more precise, he's expressing his faith, his faith that God who promised him Isaac will, in fact, fulfill that promise. The God who promised that his line, his lineage, will descend from Isaac, who is at this point unmarried, will fulfill that promise, and Isaac will have children. Very unlikely, uh, if Isaac is going to be uh, sacrificed, that he will then have children. Maybe he's expressing as a kind of certainty what he, what he can never be certain of. It's, um, it's a promise in which he has trust. Maybe it's, in fact, a statement of faith here. Uh, maybe he believes what he says, but believes it not in the sense of knowing it cognitively, but knowing it through faith, that is to say, through trust in a promise, which is basically what faith is in the biblical uh, framework. It's faith in the promise of a personal uh, God, uh, trusting uh, a promise. So you see, it's, we don't know what the answer is. I like, when I teach this uh, to classes, I like to put it on the blackboard and say, all right, how many think he's telling the truth? How many think he's not telling the truth? Not telling the truth? What's his reason for not telling the truth? Is he telling the truth? What's the reason for that? But uh, based on this text, this highly cryptic, elusive, haunting, evocative text, you can't tell. You, you can't really tell. All right, verse uh, 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. Again, it would have been much better to take the donkey up the mountain with the, with the wood. What's the effect of putting the wood on his son Isaac? The um, effect of putting the wood on his son Isaac is to uh, underscore the association of Isaac with his own impending sacrificial death. That is to say, he walks carrying the wood himself. He walks carrying the wood himself. Tomorrow we'll look at a midrash that says it's like a person being executed by the Roman punishment of crucifixion, having to carry his own stake, to carry his own stake, that's S-T-A-K-E, carry his own uh, stake uh, uh, up the, up the um, mountain. Uh, by the way, how old is uh, Isaac here? Well, it doesn't say, the text doesn't say. The Midrash and all kinds of ancient Jewish sources have ways of calculating that. One of them is we hear that Sarah dies in the next chapter, 23, so uh, the rabbis like to do what they call dorshin smuchin. They like to say these two texts are next to each other, and therefore they throw light on each other. And she doesn't just randomly die at the age of 127. She dies because uh, uh, they come back from the mountain, and she's there, I don't know, doing what, whatever she does, making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the kitchen, and Isaac comes traipsing in there, his little propeller cap on his head. And uh, well, what did you guys do today? What did you do today with Daddy? Well, Daddy took me up to the top of a mountain and tied me up and was going to slay me with this uh, knife, uh, at which point she drops dead. 
I mean, this, this is one of the midrashim. She drops dead at age 127. Now she's 90 when Isaac is born, so that means Isaac is 37. If, like the rabbis, you think Isaac is 37, then in fact you see he's a willing participant. He's a hero here. In the biblical text, I don't get the sense that he's a hero. I get the sense he's a kind of prop. I get the sense that the emphasis is completely on Abraham. Uh, but I once had a student in class who was a retired orthopedist. I hope nobody here is an orthopedist. If there is, raise your hand. Uh, I got some back problems. Uh, my feet are on their last legs. Uh, the, uh, all right, that was corny. Uh, very callous of me to tell that. I'm, I'm a heel in front of an audience. Uh, but I went to an orthopedist, and I, uh, he actually uh, was a, a man in his late 60s, and I said to him, Dr. So-and-so, just as a joke, I said, Dr. So-and-so, uh, you're a medical man. Tell me, how old does a person have to be to be able to carry enough wood on his own back to immolate his, himself? And that's the kind of question in physics. In other words, the more you weigh, the more wood you need. But the more wood you need, the more wood you can carry. You know, it's, it's a complicated issue. And he immediately, without, without uh, uh, skipping a beat, said three or four years, I'm thinking, wait, you learned that in medical school? Yeah. I mean, first of all, he missed the fact that it was a joke, but second, he, just, he knew that. But I don't know if he's three or four. If he's three or four years, it's a very different Isaac from what we have if he's 37. Okay, so he put it on his son Isaac. He himself took the fire stone. That's uh, like an equivalent today of a match or a hot charcoal. It's not a tire. And the knife, and the two of them walked on together. What's the force of the two walked on together? You sense no tension between the two. Yachdav, as one, picking up Yechidacha, your only one, your favorite one, in verse 2. The two of them walk together on together. Verse 7, then Isaac said to his father Abraham, again, underscoring the father-son connection, my father, Avi, my father, maybe a better translation might be daddy, something like that. And he answered, Hineni b'ni, Hineni, here I am. Same word as we had here in verse 1. Translate, here I am. Uh, you could say, here I am, my son, or ready, my son, or I'm alert to what you're saying, my son. We don't have an English translation for that, but it's interesting. He answers his son with the same word he uses to answer God. And he said, here are the firestone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? We're going all the way up this mountain. We forgot to bring what we're going to sacrifice. Now, if he's 37 years old, he's signaling to his father. Again, indirectly, he signals to his father, I know what this is all about. Alternatively, if he's three or four years old, he doesn't know what it's all about. He's asking an innocent question, a heart-wrenching, poignant, painful question, but an innocent question. And Abraham said, verse 8, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. God will see to the burnt offering, uh, to see to the sheep for his burnt offering, uh, my son. Now, you might say, well, that's what happens here. They end up sacrificing a ram and not Isaac. But again, Abraham hasn't read Genesis 22. You know that. He doesn't know that. Uh, is he expressing his faith that that's what will happen? Or is he simply putting his son off with a dissimulation, a lie in a sense, dissembling, I should say, because uh, he doesn't want to tell him the truth here. The son couldn't understand it. Who among us does understand it? The son might be afraid. Who knows why he says that? It's very similar to the problem we saw in verse 5. Why does he say, we will return to you? Does he believe that? Does he not believe that? What's the reason for it? But at the end, whatever the reason is, at the end of verse 8, and the two of them walked on together is exactly what you have here at the end of verse 6. Before and after this exchange, we have underscored the fact the two are as one. 
There is no tension between them. Verse 7, the question and the answer, however we interpret that, and it is ambiguous, so we can never ultimately definitively interpret it. However we interpret it, it's something that does not break the resolution of the two of them or the unity uh, of the two of them, the solidarity of the father about to do the sacrifice and the son about to be sacrificed. Verse 9, they arrived at the place of which God had told them. Again, how do they know that's the place? It doesn't say. Abraham built an altar there. Look how fast the narrative picks up here. It's been going rather slowly, agonizingly slowly up till now. Now suddenly we have something like five verbs, very, very, in very rapid order. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Why does he bind him? Why does he tie him up? Is it because he's afraid that he'll flee? Is it because he's afraid that uh, some sort of uh, involuntary twitch of the son will, in fact, uh, uh, invalidate the sacrifice? Uh, you don't see in the Olah, in the burnt offering in Leviticus 1, when it's a, a bull, you don't see it tied up. Is it just with the human sacrifice? Tying up was just part of the, the norm? Uh, who, who knows? But he ties them up, laid them on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Very, very fast. Things are speeding up now. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Okay? Uh, then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham! The angel calling from heaven is also a rare thing in biblical narrative, but it occurs in the previous chapter when Isaac is about to die, well, excuse me, when Ishmael is about to die, and he's been put under this uh, bush, and his mother, Hagar, goes a bow shot away so that she won't have to see the death of her son. And then an angel calls out to her and tells her, you know, uh, Pick up your son, he'll live, and she sees this miraculous, she sees, miraculously, she sees a well, uh, so he doesn't die of thirst. Has the well been there all along? Uh, is it miraculously created? Has she overlooked it somehow? A uh, very similar pattern. In other words, there's a kind of akedat Yishmael, a kind of binding of Ishmael in the previous chapter. Ishmael survives it, but it's not as direct or as intense as Genesis 22, the Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, is not as intense because the parent is not the one who's supposed to be doing the sacrificing. It's not a religiously sanctioned act of sacrifice as it is here. Then the angel of the Lord uh, uh, said to him, called him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he answered, Hineni. third time we've seen it, here I am, ready, alert, I'm paying attention. Uh, uh, talk to me, whatever you translate that. In other words, with the same word with which he answered God's original command and with which he answered Isaac's original question. He now answers the angel who is going to call off the sacrifice. I actually have made up my own little midrash on this, that at the time when Abraham had tied up, had bound Isaac, and Isaac was on the altar there, and Abraham was about to slay him, imagine this knife, about to slay him, about to sever the jugular and the windpipe with one blow, uh, at that very moment, uh, Abraham's uh, cell phone rang. He picked up, and uh, hello? Oh, it's, it's for Isaac. Oh, I'm sorry. He seems to be tied up at the moment. Anyway, um, so um, verse 12, and he said, this is what the angel said, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. 
Well, that's good biblical parallelism. You say the same thing over again with somewhat different words. Don't raise your hand against him. Don't strike him don't, and, uh, or do anything to him. But we'll see the rabbis say, well, wait a minute. Why repeat it? Why not just say don't, don't uh, do anything to him? Or why not just say don't raise your hand against the boy? But this is what he says. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. What's the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is just a messenger. In fact, the word malach in, in biblical Hebrew just means a messenger. It could be a human messenger. It could be an angelic messenger. But the point is he simply relays words, uh, in this case, from uh, God. So God is saying, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. Picking up the original command in verse 2. So of what is this akedah a test? It's traditional to say it's a test of Abraham's faith in God. And I understand why. We've already seen why. You could say it's a test of his faith in God. Will he uh, have faith in God's promise to him through Isaac? A promise that overrides even the command to sacrifice Isaac. Will God somehow get him out of this situation because the promise centering on Isaac, the promise of the promised son and the nation to descend from the promised son, namely Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, uh, requires that Isaac live? Or will God prove false to that promise and Isaac will then be sacrificed in, in, in response to God's own command? Uh, uh, that would say it's in fact a, a, uh, a test of Abraham's faith in God. And that idea that it's a test of his faith, that goes back, way back in Jewish and Christian and Muslim discourse, way back in Jewish discourse. But interesting enough, you don't hear anything about a word of faith, you know, one word of faith here in Genesis 22. Traditionally, it's also said that Abraham is the great lover of God. And therefore, this is a test of Abraham's love of God. Whom does he love more, God or Isaac? That's all, that goes back at least to the second century BCE in Jewish discourse, that this is a test of his love of God. And Abraham becomes the paradigm of the love of God, the prototypical lover of God. And you even read in Isaiah, in Isaiah 41.8, Zerah Avraham Ohavi, you are the descendants of Abraham, my lover, the one who loved me. The Arabic name for the town of Hebron, of Hebron, is Al-Halil, the, uh, the friend. Uh, Abraham as the friend of God. The lover, the friend, the, uh, the close associate of God. So is he, in fact, uh, uh, one who loves God enough to obey God, even when it's supremely painful and contradicts God's own promise? That's, that is another traditional reading of the Akedah. But interesting enough, in Genesis 22 itself, we don't hear a word about love, just that we don't hear a word about faith. You can infer them. I'm not saying those readings are wrong, but it's specifically a question, does he fear God, which has to do with obedience. Is he willing to obey God's wishes? Now, you might say, well, uh, uh, obedience uh, is, uh, is fairly easy. If some, God said to me, you know what, uh, start walking, I'll give you Southern California. I probably would have a bad feet, but I, you know, not bad. Nice, nice environment, nice people. I'd probably do it. Right? I don't really like palm trees. Yeah, not, not bad. I'll do it. Uh, that is to say, when you obey, and it's in your interest to obey, that is uh, one form of obedience, not necessarily the highest. But what happens when the obedience requires a sacrifice, with a capital S or a small s? What happens when there's a cost to it? What happens when there's a countervailing good? Now what do you choose? What happens when you have to give something up out of obedience as opposed simply to having it pay off? If you see it that way, this, test sound, this text sounds a lot like the book of Job, where Job is highly obedient to God. He's a person who turns from evil, fears the Lord, turns from evil, very similar language to this. 
but uh, as the Satan, as the Satan, as the prosecuting attorney in the heavenly council says in the beginning of the book of Job, hey, you know what? It's always paid off. Why shouldn't he do it? You've always hedged him around. Why shouldn't it? It's always paid off. Why don't you try having it not pay off and see what he does? He'll curse you if you, in fact, uh, strike him. Strike his wealth, strike his family, strike his own person. And you'll see it's phony. It's a phony obedience. It's, it's, not, it's not genuine. It's a phony commitment to God. As soon as uh, it costs something dear and precious, he, in fact, uh, will, uh, will cave and, uh, and abandon that commitment. Uh, Jewish tradition has a tendency to say that's, in fact, what's going on here with Abraham. And what's being tested is his fear of God. Now that that test has been uh, met, now that, now that the, the, uh, the uh, test is called off, Verse 13, when Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. All of a sudden, there's an animal there. Now, 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 was the animal there all along? Was Abraham just so intensely focused on this deed, he didn't notice the ram caught in the thicket by its horns? Has the ram only now come to be caught in, its thicket, in the thicket by its horns? Hadn't been there all along? But he looks up and he sees something he hadn't seen before. Very much like the previous chapter, chapter 21, where Hagar sees a well. God uh, opened her eyes and she saw a well that she hadn't seen before. And that well saves her dying son's life. Uh, he sees the ram. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, tachat bono, in place of his son. God never tells him to do that. But he does it. Maybe there was some sense the sacrificial act had to be carried out somehow. There'd be some token carrying out of it. He sacrifices the ram in place of his son. And Abraham named that place Adonai Yir'eh, whence the present saying, Bahar Adonai Yir'eh, on the mount of the Lord he is seen, or he appears. He named the place the, God, the Lord will see, which apparently is somehow thought of as validating some contemporary statement well known to the audience of this text. On the mountain of the Lord he is seen. Well, what, what's the mountain of the Lord? Usually Har Hashem in the Bible, the mountain of the Lord usually means the mountain in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the temple mount in Jerusalem. Not today what they call Mount Zion, but the Har Habayat, the temple mountain in Jerusalem. Is this all a uh, ideology of the mountain in Jerusalem? Maybe, maybe not. But he names it Adonai Yireh, the Lord will see, which picks up what he says to Isaac in verse 8. God will see Elohim Yireh to the sheep for a burnt offering. Here it's Adonai Yireh, the Lord will see, whence the presence is saying, on the mountain of the Lord he is seen or he appears. Verse 15. Well, well, I have time for questions. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Why does he call a second time? Looks like an interpolated text. Looks like something that's been added to make a point that you might not have gotten from the first 14 verses. And here's what the angel of the Lord says his second, in his second speech. By myself, I swear. Well, you have to do that if you're God, right? <laughs> who are you going to swear by? You know, they used to say about Henry Kissinger, he's the only person who calls dial a prayer and asks if there are any messages. Um, someday in class, I can't use it. People, who, Henry who? And, you know, it's, it's a big problem. Um, but um, uh, by myself I swear, so God's about to swear a solemn oath. Be the Lord declares, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your favored one, picking up that language now a third time, I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands on the seashore, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. Okay. 
Um, I said earlier that in Genesis 12, when we first hear about Abraham being singled out and being given this great promise, there's not a slightest thing there, a garnished and garnished that he has done to deserve this. Later tradition says he, he was a monotheist, he saw through idolatry, blah, blah, blah. All very important traditions, which we'll talk about. My next two classes are going to be about blah, blah, blah. But, with a special emphasis on that middle blah. But, the, um, the, uh, in Genesis 12, it's a bolt out of the blue. It seems to be an act of pure grace, to use the theological language. Abraham, for no particular reason, is singled out and told, you will be the father of a great nation. I will make you a great nation. You will be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. I will curse those who curse you. And then he gives him a land. Based on what? What has he done to deserve this? Now, if you like it, you can call it grace, the pure grace of God, pure act of generosity on the part of God, chesed if you want. If you don't like it, you could call it arbitrariness. Why Abraham and not somebody else? What has he done? Why, are you gonna, why do you single this one guy out? Why do you single out this one person? And underlying that is the larger question, why do you single out the Jewish people? Why should there be this special people with this special relationship with God, this special set of obligations, this special set of promises, this special destiny? Why, would, why should that be the case? I think this second angelic address here in Genesis uh, 22, 15 is re-evaluating the whole career of Abraham from 12 through 22 and saying the reason for this is the Akedah. The Akedah has now become a foundational act. It's because you did this, because you did not withhold your son, your favorite one, that I'm bestowing the blessing on you. And the blessing to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven, you've already seen that in Genesis 15, and the sands on the seashore, you saw that in Genesis 13. All those old blessings that we've been reading about now for 10 chapters, you know what they really are, what really validates them is Abraham's phenomenal act of, of obedience and sacrifice, his willingness to sacrifice his son. No, he didn't sacrifice his son, but he was willing to. He did not withhold his son, as most of us uh, would. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants. Again, picking up the initial promise, which has been reiterated a couple of times. And your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants because you have obeyed my command. Because you did this, that's the reason. It's no longer an act of arbitrariness. There's a foundational act of obedience that merits this. Abraham has come to merit what was originally promised him purely as an act of grace, purely as an unmotivated act of generosity on God's part, that has now come to be reconceived as a reward for the obedience of Abraham, demonstrating the Akedah. Verse 19, Abraham then returned to his servants, which he predicted he would do, and they departed together for Beersheba, Yachtav, together, picking that word up again, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Now, some people might say, well, wait a minute, where's Isaac? Where's Isaac here, right? Abraham returned to his servants, where's Isaac? And traditions developed, especially in the Middle Ages, that Isaac was sacrificed and then resurrected from the dead. Uh, that may be an old tradition, may not. It doesn't show up clearly to the Middle Ages. Uh, there's another tradition that says Abraham sent Isaac off to the yeshiva of Shem ever to learn, to study which some people would say is the equivalent of being sacrificed. Uh, 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 you can see why people would think there's something funny here. Abraham returned to his servants. I personally don't think there's anything funny here. I don't know why you're all laughing. Uh, because uh, as I see it, 
the story begins where it ends where it began. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. In the biblical story, only Abraham is being tested. Isaac is almost a prop here. As I say, we don't know how old Isaac is. We don't know what he knows. We don't, we don't understand his involvement here, except he's, he, is what, he is the most precious thing Abraham could have, which he's, he is commanded to sacrifice. The Radak, a Jewish commentator, David Kimchi, in the 13th century in Provençal, says Abraham would have preferred to sacrifice himself. Quite frankly, Abraham would have preferred to, to die the martyr's death or even to commit suicide rather than to have to sacrifice uh, Isaac. That's how important Isaac is to him. But the test is not a test of Isaac here. Uh, in my view, it's a test of Abraham. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham on the test. Abraham then returned. He goes out and he returns. Uh, uh, Isaac is not, is not essential to the biblical story. He becomes very, very essential in Midrash and in, in Christian and uh, Muslim tradition as well. Then we have a little genealogy here in verse uh, 20. And the genealogy seems kind of, uh, uh, it, let's just say, it reduces the tension considerably. Uh, <laughs> Sometime after, Abraham was told, Milka too has borne children to your brother uh, Nahor. Uz, the firstborn, and Booz, his brother, who had an alcohol problem. And Kimuel, the father of Aram. And Chesed, Chazo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bituel, Bituel being the father of Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore children. Tevach, Gaham, Tachash, and Ma'aka. All right. Uh, you have this enormously tense, powerful, gripping, heart-wrenching, problematic narrative, and then you get this little genealogy sitting there. But I maintain the genealogy. Some people would say, well, the genealogy, you've got to put it someplace, so we'll stick it here. <laughs> I think the genealogy picks up the Akedah more than you may think. There is a particular oddity in this genealogy. There is only one descendant. Of, well, first of all, you've got Milka and the concubine Ru'umah, the wife Milka and the concubine Ru'umah. Milka has eight children. Ru'umah has four children. For a total of 12 children. Uh, you know, Tommy's going to be talking to a bunch of mathematicians. Uh, 12 children. You've got, you got these 12 sons. Eight by the primary wife, four by the secondary wife. Does that sound familiar? That happens to be the story of the Bnei Yisrael of the Israelites, children of Jacob. Jacob has, has eight sons by his primary wives, Leah and Rachel, and two by the secondary wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. For four by the second, two secondary wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, for a total of 12. You might say you've got a kind of 12-tribe league here being already gestured towards. But also, among the descendants of, um, of Nahor, there's only one woman mentioned. It says, Bituel being the father of Rebekah. Now, uh, Remember, remember the rule I gave you of genetics, that infertility is inherited. Uh, if your parents inherit children, you won't either. Uh, there's a similar rule here, which I learned from my high school biology teacher, who when asked about the, sex, the, the facts of life in a 10th grade said it takes two to tango. Uh, they didn't have dancing in my school, but we all knew what he meant. Uh, uh, if Isaac is in fact going to father this promised nation, which comes into existence in the time of his, his grandchildren, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, uh, he's got to have a wife. And so we hear about the birth of the equivalent person within the family, namely Rebekah, the only, only woman among the descendants of, of uh, Nahor that's mentioned. But not only that, but when you actually see in Genesis 24, when she is about to leave home and leave the Mesopotamian homeland and go back to 
Canaan, to Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel, to marry Isaac, her brothers give her this blessing in which they say basically the same thing that you see here in uh, the end of verse 17. Your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. It's just a difference of oivav and sonav. It's the same, but it's the same expression. One says foes, one says enemies. It means the same thing, haters. Your descendants shall seize the gates of your foes. The, the blessing they give to Rebekah echoes the blessing we see here on Isaac or uh, on Abraham uh, realized through Isaac. So you have a sense that providence is already working in a sense to secure this match, to secure this uh, shidduch of, of uh, Isaac and Rebekah so that the promise to Abraham, which has been in doubt throughout this very difficult passage, will in fact finally be validated and vindicated in the marriage of those two children. Thank you very much. Thank you.